right, it is that time to get started. Well, one thing we know about God is that he is not a last-minute type, especially when it came to that first Christmas. And so, yeah, literally, what, centuries planning, setting the stage for the big day to come. That very first Christmas announcement, you'll recall, was made 4,000 years earlier in a garden called Eden at the scene of a terrible, unspeakable tragedy, the fall of man. Adam trespassed and sinned and died, and we died with him. One Through one man's disobedience, sin came into the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all have sinned, to quote Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Yes, indeed, but right then and there, the Lord announces in the garden in front of this terrible tragedy, he says, no worries, a conqueror shall be born of a virgin. And from that chapter, there are 1,100 further chapters on how God would prepare the world to receive the Savior born of a virgin. And so, yeah, following the announcement, he started getting ready for Christmas, uh, establishing the messianic line, filling the mouths of all of his Old Testament prophets with detailed descriptions of the coming one, when and where he'd be born, how he would live, and most importantly, how he would die as a sacrifice for our sins to reconcile us to God. So God was preparing. He's busy preparing. And he wanted his people to do the same as the time drew near. And so he would send somebody to prepare the way for the Lord, lest somebody miss it, right? So the hearts of God's people would be ready to receive Messiah the Savior Jesus, and the good news that he would proclaim. So there would be two supernatural births, right? The first and of greatest significance, of course, the birth of the Messiah through a, a virgin as promised in the Old Testament, and another lesser miracle, but miraculous nonetheless, um, another birth, the birth of the forerunner, the one who would herald the good news before the Savior, and that birth was also uh, talked about in the Old Testament. And his name would be John. That's what the angel Gabriel tells his soon-to-be expectant father, Zechariah, here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, uh, when he surprises Zechariah with an appearance in the temple there in Jerusalem. The amazing uh, encounter is going to be our focus this morning uh, for uh, our reflection. And so, uh, huge insights available here. Don't miss them. The angel's words are loaded with encouragement and insight. The description of John the Baptist's ministry really sheds light on what the gospel is all about. And along with Zechariah's infamous unbecoming response, that will bring some sad and humiliating consequences for this man of God. It's, it's something we'll all want to avoid. 
Uh, that slippery slope for sure. So all really good stuff now as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas with the true meaning, right? Because we're the ones who know that because we have the scriptures. So let's look at those scriptures, the encounter here. We'll read it through all the way. And then as is our custom, we'll come back to the beginning and walk through and see what God has for us. Always a lot of good stuff. So starting in verse 5. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So they were both in the line there. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Man, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He'll be a great joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's quoting now from Malachi chapter 4. Gabriel quoting the last verse of the Old Testament. Interesting. In the spirit and power of Elijah, John will come to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah's response. Zechariah says, how can I be sure of this? How do I know this is going to happen? I'm an old man and my wife's in the same kind of condition. The angel said to him, <clears throat> well, I'm Gabriel <laughs> and I stand in the presence of God <laughs> and I've been sent by God to you from heaven to speak to you in person to tell you this good news. And now, you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he's taken so long in the temple when he came out. Yeah, he was busy. <laughs> he, he could not speak to them. Mm. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them. <laughs> you know, can you imagine? But remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. 
after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Why did she do that? I'm going to tell you right now. She did that because she wasn't going to come out after all these years as an old woman and say, guess what, everybody? I'm pregnant. And everybody go, <coughs> because they can't see what she's, she's hiding in seclusion, not because someone can tell, right? Because she's going to wait until it's obvious so she can announce to all of those negative people out there who thought she was under God's curse that, look, everybody, guess what? I'm pregnant. And now they all rejoice and nobody's looking at her stomach for five long months saying, yeah, you're pregnant. Whatever. She's a smart woman. (laughs) The Lord has done this for me. Ta-da. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. You see, that's exactly how they thought of it. Like God was punishing them. And so they have reason for great joy there. So let's start at the beginning there. For context, note takers, it was in a very dark time that God was at work in the time of Herod, king of Judea. So that little note there is great significance to the entire messianic event. It was in the time of darkness It was a horrible, miserable, oppressive time. 400 years of silence from God. Israel was in decline and they were being ruled by a a self-absorbed, obsessive, horrible king. Uh, Herod is a title. Uh, The great, well, he wasn't anything great. The only thing he was great about was his capacity to sin and be an evil doer. Herod the great sinner as he is called by the commentators. Uh, And so yeah uh, he wasn't a Jew first of all. He liked to uh, play himself off as the real deal but he's actually a descendant of the Edomites who were enemies of Israel and he's the one who gave himself the title of king. He's not in the kingly line. He's not a king. But he called himself a king and he named himself Herod the Great. (laughs) He's an egomaniac and he would kill anybody who viewed uh, that he viewed as a threat to his popularity or to his position it was said in that day it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs in, in the barn than one of his sons in his home. Because he killed a bunch of his sons and a bunch of his daughters and some of his wives as well. He had ten of them while they were living. And so, yeah, in the time of Herod, in the time of great darkness, God, unseen, was working and at its best and about to do something wonderful. But it was in the time of great darkness. An example of this evil man, of course, when he's outsmarted by the wise men who tell him, where is the one born king of the Jews? He wants to know, well, go find him so that I can come and worship him, you know, and the angel 
or however God warned the wise men to take the back roads to escape him. When he is outsmarted, he throws a temper tantrum, doesn't he? And he gives the order, this is the kind of man that all the babies born in the area, two years old and younger, were to be ripped out of their parents' arms and slaughtered. There's only one king, Herod the Great. None of this king of the Jews thing. I'm the king of the Jews. And all other rivals will be dealt with accordingly. So what's the scriptures telling us? It was in the darkest of times. When there was not much hope in sight. When the wicked were in power. That God was at work. The psalmist asked in dismay, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11. Well, as the scriptures say, when the wicked are in power, the righteous groan. So what do we do? We groan, but that's okay. You know why? When the righteous groan, the Holy Spirit takes their groaning and interprets that before the throne of grace. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 says the Holy Spirit takes our groaning and turns it into intercessory prayer that is sweet before the throne of God and effective. And so that's what the righteous do when the foundations are being shaken. Now, God comes through in the dark but nobody expects in a way that nobody expects. And he's going to use weakness now to shame the so-called mighty. He's going to use that which the world would count as foolish old couple with no babies past their prime. God's going to connect the Old Testament to the New Testament through this couple and their son when the facts are they're incapable of producing a son. That's our God. So we're introduced in your text to Zechariah. His name means God remembers, as in God remembers his promise. 400 years of silence, but Zechariah, God remembers. And Elizabeth, their names really tell the whole story. Elizabeth means, My God is my oath. It means God will be faithful, God will do what he said, right? So we've got the two um, people who are going to begin this whole story of Christmas saying to 400 years of silence from God and a lot of darkness from an oppressive regime, God remembers. He remembers us in our need. He remembers his promises and he's faithful. To quote Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, who are they? They're good people. They've been put right with God. That's what the word righteous means. And how, do, how does that happen? Even in the Old Testament, nobody got saved by keeping laws. They got saved because of their faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 says, those who will be justified or acquitted live by faith. And so they, because of their faith, they were put right with God. They obeyed his commands, follow me in the text. They were blameless. That means not sinless. They were blameless, meaning their motivation. In other words, this is a couple who lived to serve God. 
and to serve honorably in their lives before God during those very dark times, which is harder when it's spiritually dark in our environment. And we're told now that uh, they even, even, the, even on top of having to deal with the dark environment, they have a, a cloud, a shadow cast upon their own lives, personal pain and disillusionment, and to add insult to injury of not being able to have kids in that culture. On top of that, as I've already said, that the community would raise an eyebrow, as it were, and wonder what sin God is punishing them for in that something of uh, misfortune had come upon them. And we are all so guilty of that. When misfortune happens to even godly people and something terrible in their lives, we just all run to, I wonder what God is teaching them. I wonder what really happened there. Why would God do that? Right? Something, something's not right there. Oh, really? You know, and that, you know how God deals with those people? He brings it back to them. And now they have the misfortune. And now they have to answer oh, I guess maybe random things just happen and God is working in his way. It doesn't necessarily mean God is displeased with somebody who has to suffer, right? And so we see that here. I like what Alistair Begg pointed out about these two. He said, well, God made sure that their parents named them appropriately uh, because he knew what kind of darkness they would have to live in. And on top of that, uh, the kind of the disappointment in not having kids. So every morning, their names, the meaning of their names, every morning and every time they called the other one by their name, they had to be reminded. So Elizabeth gets up in the morning and she says, to Zechariah, good morning, God remembers, <laughs> right? And then God remembers, has to say back to her, oh, I slept good. How did you sleep? The Lord is faithful. Question mark. There you go. And so one writer said, sometimes our greatest source of encouragement is right under our noses, and we don't understand it. God remembers. <laughs> He remembers. He remembers who we are. He knows where you live. He knows what you're going through. His eye is on you. His eye is on the sparrow. How much more upon you? Continuing now, verse 8 and following. Now we find out about his duty uh, before God and how this all came about uh, that the angel came in the context of. And listen to this. And it's usually the case, as we're doing our duty, our Christian lives, as we're shining the light and living uprightly before him in whatever it is we do. It's then, when we're walking right with God and doing our duty in the, our gospel, that the message, the blessing, the visitation comes. And that's what happens here, note takers now, the duty. And so, a quick overview of what's going on here. They're both in the line. I say, think of a priest in 
this case, a Levitical priest, more not like a Catholic priest because they're married. They're more like Protestant pastors, really, because they're in charge of the oversight of the temple, which is kind of like church. And, and they uh, are responsible for receiving and preparing and, and offering the sacrifices, which pointed, of course, to Jesus. They collected offerings and they maintained the facility and they arranged the worship and the music. They were in charge. They facilitated communion. Communion, they had communion when they'd offer certain kinds of offerings, acted as a, a meal together. And so in the temple courts, there were tables and, and they had dinners and celebrations and, and the priest would break the bread and there was communion. In fact, that's part of what's in the holy places, a stack of bread which typified, and which I'll show you, typified the Lord again. And so they did all of these things. Uh, let, me, let me show you the temple. So in the temple, <clears throat> inside this building, this is all the, whole, the whole temple grounds, but this is the temple here. And so Zechariah was in the line of priests and happens to be that also Elizabeth is the daughter of a pastor as well. So there's a double blessing there. So Zechariah and there are, Josephus says, 20,000 Levitical priests available. They are divided into 24 groups and they take turns uh, serving God in the temple uh, once a year. And they would stay for a week and do their duties. Now, 50 of them were required to do the work of the ministry. But for going in daily, morning and evening, to offer the incense, that was considered so sacred and honored that you'd have to cast lots for that position to avoid favoritism and corruption because everybody wanted to get in there and see what nobody else could ever see right for, and for that privilege once a man went in to the holy place now a holy of holy is in there behind a curtain but once the man went into that place they had a nickname for him which meant wealthy so they'd call him in hebrew oshid so from then on they were the wealthy men the wealthy men so uh that's why the lots. And so they're, they're going to go in there and, and, and here's what they had to do. Now here's a little uh, scene. It was, it was a gif actually and these were alive and moving and the smoke was going up but ProPresenter doesn't recognize it. So you'll have to imagine that. <laughs> and so what the job was, Old Testament prophecy of I am the light of the world, of Christ. Old Testament prophecy, I am the bread of life. He who eats of this bread will live forever. Old Testament prophecy of the intercession of Christ, the prayers of Christ on our behalf and the prayers of God's people. But here's the deal about this. Those coals must be lit by a coal that is taken from the altar of sacrifice outside the temple where the sacrificial animal was slain. The blood drips down and you take that and only that to light this because these prayers of God's people have to go up in Jesus' name and be atoned for to be sweet and fragrant by the blood of Jesus. 
Now, in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, remember them? They were Aaron's party animal sons. And even Aaron had sons that were like that. And they got lazy one day. And they had a light. They went in to light this. But they didn't use the coal from the fire of sacrifice. What they did, they just said, do you want to go? Oh, we forgot to go all the way out. Who cares? Just light it. So they took out a big lighter. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever they did. But whatever they did cost them their lives because God struck those two down. And they died there before the Lord. And so here he is. He's there in the middle. He's got the coals in there. He puts the pinch of incense there and the smoke starts to go up. He's taking in all of the colors and, the, and he's trying to photograph everything in his mind and it's insanely quiet because the reverence, I'm in the holy place and then this happens. <laughs> the next slide here with the text. Then the angel of the Lord, uh, Gabriel, shows up. That's pretty amazing. No wonder he's, you know, startled is not the right English word. Devastated, (laughs) paralyzed with fear. It's troubled, like Mary. It's the same word of being upset and undone in the presence of a celestial visitor. And so this is the same angel that would visit Mary and cause her to be greatly troubled and now causes him to be gripped in fear. And he says the same thing. And most angels, when they appear to people, they start out with, don't be afraid. Well, of course, right? Because of, uh, we, we, we should be afraid with holy terror. You know, without warning, suddenly you look up and there he is in all his glory. That's amazing. I personally, as I mentioned with Mary last week, I believe that angels have the power, and of course they do. We already know biblically that they can, they watch over us, and they're sent to serve us and to help us and to strengthen us. Well, how do I know that? Well, when Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was in the garden, anguished, sweating drops of blood, quote, an angel appeared to him and strengthened him. How did he do that? You know, I just believe that there have been times in your life and mine when a tidal wave, a tsunami, an unspeakable surprise, a devastation, just wipes you out. And you're standing. And you're here today. Why? Because not only do you have the Holy Spirit of God within you, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, Romans chapter 8, but you have on top of that the host, the heavenly hosts about us who are strengthening us and guiding us and touching us. Now we don't ask them to touch us. We ask God to touch us and how he does that is his business. Amen? <laughs> but it's not with, with that. It is not without the possibility of this scene happening. So instead of coming apart, he strengthens him enough to be able to take in the message. Let's look at the message. He says, number one, most intriguing, your prayer's been heard. Okay, what prayer are we talking about? Well, that's amazing 
because I can tell you with some confidence, as all the commentators also agree, that Zechariah in that moment is not praying for a son. Not in that moment. That's not his duty. His duty was pray for the consolation of Israel, as Simeon called it, right? The consolation of Israel was to speak comfort and words um, um, uh, to intercede for the alleviation of sorrow or loss, consolation of Israel, meaning, Lord, we're living under dark times. We've got this oppression from Herod. We've got the, uh, the Roman authorities. It's horrible. We look to you for your Messiah. That was his job, and that was his prayer. What is amazing is, is that the angel will answer the prayer by saying, God has heard your prayer for Israel, and he has heard your prayer for a son, and he's wed the two together. And so for the consolation of Israel, we're going to begin by answering the first prayer you prayed 30 years ago for the boy, and the boy is going to be the herald of the answer to the consolation of Israel. And so God, I know, the multitasking ability of our great God who has known the mind of the Lord and who has ever counseled him for for him and from him and to him all praise and glory. Romans chapter 11 at the end there I think it's verse 33 that I was quoting and so yes indeed just poetic justice there. God has heard your prayer and he's going to do both there. So he says in verse 15 he uh, he's going to be truly great in God's sight and check that out. You know, he, he's not going to be on the cover of Time magazine as person of the year because only people who defy God and live in perverted ways can end up usually on that cover. Whom the world applauds uh, is not highly favored usually in God's sight. And so, uh, so heaven is applauding your boy in the future uh, sir, so that's nice to know. Three other things to note, Zechariah. He won't be a party guy. He won't be wine tasting, as wine tasting is okay, you know. Uh, but he's not going to be a guy who's a drinker because he's really going to be filled not with alcohol but with the spirit even before he's even born. Uh, and, and why is that? Well, because he's going to have a sober a sobering message, isn't he? His job is to prepare the people to receive the good news by telling them the bad news, by stirring them up and getting them aware of their own sin and their own helplessness and their guilt and their shame and their fear. He's stirring all of that up. So this is why he's going to have a sobering kind of ministry. And then, uh, uh, then verse 17, there's a distinction and probably Zechariah is uh, relieved to know that he won't be the Messiah. You know, he's going to be uh, one who introduces Jesus. He is not the Messiah, and he's going to introduce uh, the Lord in the Old Testament prophetic style. And so he says, in the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah. And then I want to show you what 
the angel is quoting. Here I have it for you in, Ma- in Malachi 4. These are the last words of the Old Testament. See, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. Well, he's already been dead a long time. To you, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before the great tribulation, one coming, going to be the spirit of Elijah, is going to herald the day of salvation and the age of grace before the day of tribulation. He will turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. You know, that's the hope. The hope, the messianic hope is that the world won't be destroyed there. And so this is an amazing thing. And so what is he quoting? The last verse of the Old Testament, what he's doing is saying, I'm here to tell you that your son is the link. He is the Elijah to come. So that we, the Old Testament is wrapping up 400 years of silence, and God is now picking up with the New Testament, and your son leads the way. He is going to be the Elijah. He is going to come in the spirit. Now, Elijah isn't reincarnated. He's going to say in the spirit of Elijah. The prophetic similarities, they dress the same. I mean, who wears camel fur besides Jordan Skiles? And a leather belt and eats locusts and wild honey and yelling in the desert with the staff the whole nine yards. Any any Jew who saw John the Baptist would say, whoa, I thought I just saw Elijah, right? So, in fact, the Jews weren't looking for Messiah. They were looking for Elijah. And to this day, at Passover meal, at the Seder dinner, there's a chair reserved for who? For Elijah. They're waiting still for Elijah. So the disciples tell Jesus in Luke 17, what's up? We've always been taught that Elijah comes before you. So so we're confused. And Jesus said, and, and I quote, it's true, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. They killed him. And they're going to treat me the same way. That's what he said. So in the spirit of Elijah, as it were, figuratively speaking, Elijah came and Gabriel wants Zechariah to know, your boy, your boy is the Elijah to come. That's an amazing thing. Let's finish up with what I'm calling Zechariah's belly flop. All right, because this is just really sad. He's not buying it. He wants really a sign. So the big misstep here, verses 18 and following are on the screen, right? So what's his problem? His problem is he's got his eyes on his problem instead of his God. And that's what we do. And that's when our faith goes out the window, you see. And uh, I mean, it's everywhere in the Bible. Let me choose one. Uh, Peter, walking on the water. He's looking at Jesus. He's doing fine. He's doing what he could never do without God's help until, of course, he looks at the problem. And as soon as he looks at the problem, instead of the Savior, you know, he starts to sink. And Jesus has to say, silly man. He calls him, in the Greek, it says, little man faith. Oh, you little man faith. Yeah. And then he says, why'd you doubt? 
Won't you just keep here? Just keep here. You know, horses can be trained to be bombproof, right? And what that means is is that they're able to march in the Macy's Day Parade and all kinds of things going off. (laughs) Firecrackers and fireworks and all of that. And they stay. They don't get spooked. They're bombproof. That's because people need to be. So when the bomb goes off, and that's sad to say, bombs go off. Even look at these young, beautiful faces. Bombs go off. And they're going off. And they have gone off, haven't they? And some people are bombproof and some are not. And this dude, you know, listen, Mary is going to outshine him right now. Mary is what, 15, 16? She's, how long has she known the Lord? Well, she grew up in a, in a godly home, but you know, he's got a lifetime and he's godly and he's right with God and he's blameless. So listen, you can be mature in the Lord and still have a belly flop right at the end. Or you could be young in the faith and outshine your elders. You can have heroism in a young believer's heart and you can have folly in a mature believing heart. Which will it be? So, yeah. So he says, look, your words are exciting, but let me clue you into the biological facts, Gabriel. You know, people like me, I'm old. My wife's in the same condition. Uh, We don't have babies. I don't know how it is where you're from, but, you know, (laughs) let me just tell you that, you know. So listen, and I I already kind of did it when I read it, but this is his, (laughs) I paraphrase Gabriel's response, I love it. So he says, well, when he says, you know, I need a sign. How am I ever going to know? How would I ever know in a million years that this could ever happen? And he says, well, my friend, I would think, Zechariah, when an angel like me, an archangel, an archangel who went to Daniel several several centuries earlier, when an archangel shows up, sent by God to you from heaven, I would think that that would be enough time for you. <laughs> so as a consequence of your sad lack of faith, you will get a sign. And here's your sign. You're not going to be able to speak It's such a fitting chastisement. Of course. Why should you be able to share the good news and tell everybody living in darkness, there's hope, God's on the move, Messiah's coming. Oh no, you didn't believe it. So why should you be able to share it? And that's how it is today with some of our doubting Christian friends, totally saved, but just don't really have enough faith. And so it kind of sidelines you. And everybody else is talking and singing and praising. You're not sharing. Because you're not full of faith. That's what it does. It does that. It sidelines us when we doubt seasons of doubt. And God is so gracious and patient with us, isn't he? Because we all have our seasons, including me. You know, God has promised us some mighty <laughs> powerful things and sometimes we look at our lives and go I don't see it but it's 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 coming because he said it's coming you know Abraham 
was in the same kind of situation. And, and I mean, he was almost 100 years old, and God had told him, you're going to have a son. And, and, and Sarah was 90. And, and yet, here's what happened to him. So Romans 4 says, Abraham was a realist as well. Only he had faith. He said, it says there, Abraham faced the facts that his body was good as dead, and so was his wife's. But instead of wavering, he was unwavering in his faith, and he was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God because, and I quote, he believed that God was able to do what God said he would do. You see? And then it tags this line, because God raises the dead to life, and he calls into existence things that don't exist. That's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. Oh, I'm just wondering if there's something today. Your greatest disillusionment, your greatest disappointment, all the years that they cried and felt horribly um, depressed and confused about, little did they know that tagged to that would be their greatest joy and, and some of the most amazing news that the world has ever known. Miraculous. And is it possible that God has destined somebody here that in your barrenness, whatever that empty spot, that crazy, doesn't make sense pain that has swept over you, that in God's plan and timing, that very thing is going to be manifested in a way that is so amazing that you couldn't even dream about it in a million years. I believe that that's a word for people in the, these three services and even in my own life. And how are you going to be with that? Are you like, well, it's probably for somebody else. <laughs> it's probably for the guy next to me. Oh, certainly couldn't happen in my life to the thing I'm thinking about, because the thing I'm thinking about, no way in a million years. Oh, Zechariah. Zechariah, don't do that. Instead, be more like Mary, who said, oh, may that be what you have said. May that come to pass in my life, for I am the servant of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we look to you. <laughs> With an amazing story, God, and all because of their two names. You remember, and you are faithful. And you have a plan, and it's good. A plan to give us a hope and a future, not to harm us. Father God, help us to take these truths and apply them to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.